It's good to see you all here. Some of you are wondering why, you're, why I'm here. I, I've had a number of you say, why are you here? How, how, do you, how would you feel like if you work at a church and, and then people see you and they say, why are you here? <laughs> Somebody thought I was gone already. Oh, no, no. One more time. <laughs> I'll be gone this afternoon. Hey, we're wrapping up the, the series in Joseph today. And I'm excited to do that. Quick recap, if you're unfamiliar with the story, or maybe you've just been away for a bit, or, or you're a guest today. So, Joseph was the privileged son of Jacob, who's one of the big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the big three forefathers of both the Hebrew, Jewish, and Christian religions. So, um, Joseph was a son of this third guy, Jacob, and he was favored. He was a bit of a pretty boy. He was arrogant. His brothers hated him. They sold him off into slavery. And for 22 years, he was estranged from his family. Sold into slavery in Egypt, kind of the world superpower of the day. And in those 22 years, he had a lot of hard times, but also some good times. God was with him through it all. And through an amazing series of events, he eventually ended up being second in command of the king of Egypt himself and in charge of all the food during a time of famine. God did some amazing things. That's where we've been traveling the last few weeks. And if you Missed that, and we'd like to pick up on that story. It's available on iTunes under our church name, Erickson Covenant Church, but also on our website, so you can catch up there. But eventually, Joseph is reunited with his half-brothers who'd sold him into slavery. It's an amazing reunion, amazing story. We looked at it the last couple weeks. And then eventually he meets his full brother, Benjamin, and, and, and now he's going to finally see his dad again after all these years. And today we approach the last stage of the Joseph story, kind of the epilogue, the ending. And actually the story of, of Joseph now shifts wider again to include his brothers and his, his father and the, the, the grandsons and kind of the whole family is back in the story. And that's what we're, we're going to do today. We're going to look at a little bit of it. We're not going to look at the whole five chapters. You'll be relieved to know. And if you take the time, though, this week, which I encourage you to, do, to finish the story, read the last five chapters of Genesis, um, you'll see something really distinct, that coming through this whole story at the end, there, 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 well, a theme of blessing emerges. And it's actually all over in this last part of the story. First of all, which is what we're going to look at most uh, closely today, God renews his blessing to his promise of blessing to, to Jacob himself. Then Jacob, in turns after he shows up, he blesses the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, blesses him twice, actually. It's kind of a neat story. And then he goes on in quite a number of uh, words, there's some chapters, uh, whole chapters, where Jacob is then blessing his sons and his grandsons. A very distinct uh, blessing. And then there's even a prophetic blessing to one of his sons, It's actually the son we've seen a big character arc, Judah. Uh, He blesses one of his sons prophetically by telling him that it's through him that eventually Jesus would come. Jacob doesn't use the word Jesus, but that is a prophetic blessing that he gives. So blessing, blessing, blessing. That's all through the last part of the story. Now, when you dive into it this week, you'll notice something a little odd. Blessing from dad isn't always nice. So some of the blessings Jacob gives, you're like, I don't want that. Thank Pass me by, please. So some of the blessings, like, ooh, hard words are spoken to some of the sons. But all of them, if you capture it all together, it all represents the transfer of promise. They all point forward to God's plan to bless the world through this family. They also point forward to a shadow side, 
to the failure of this family to fully realize this promise until the coming of Jesus Christ himself. Now, we don't have weeks to trace all these promises. You'll be maybe thankful for that. We're going to focus on the biggest promise of them all, the renewal of God's biggest promise to Jacob himself. And then from that promise, promise we're going to, we're going to trace forward to the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ and then really how that promise is then transferred to us as the church. But first, let's read it. We're going to pick up at Genesis 46, just verses 1 to 7 today. We did three whole chapters last week, so I figured seven verses might be good for today. You know, uh, Joseph has called for his father. His father is now coming. He's on his way with all the rest of the family, coming west to Egypt from the land of Canaan. Pharaoh has sent out carts, you know, moving vans, so the family can move to Egypt. And here's where we pick up the story, uh, Genesis 46. So Israel, that's Jacob, he has two names, they go back and forth, even in the same story. Israel set out with all that was his, and he reached Beersheba, that's this place along the way, and there he offered sacrifices to God, the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God. The God of your father, he said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport them. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. Well, Jacob has finally received the news that in the tragedy of his life, the news he never thought he would hear, the news that the son he thought he'd lost was in fact alive and <laughs> to blow all, all things out of the water, not just alive, but second in command to the man in charge of the known world, the world superpower of the time. But the news of his son's not only life but position comes with an invitation, an invitation to leave the land of Canaan, the land he's been living in, the very land that God had promised to his grandfather Abraham to his father Isaac and had promised to him. You see, Jacob's been camping on this land with his little family, his growing family, but still little family. He's been camping on this land, moving around, camping kind of in faith that someday his family would grow to the point where they could actually occupy the whole thing. But now he's being invited to leave. Well, could he do that? Could he leave the land now? Would would, would leaving the land be... An act of faithlessness? Would it mean that he's somehow giving up on this promise? And so as he's going down to Egypt, God steps in to renew his promise to Jacob. How is this promise a renewal? Well, actually, because it's a restatement of something God has already said before. Previous promises that God has given. Ever since God first showed up and spoke to Abraham back in Genesis 12, really important story, 
God showed up and spoke to Abraham and gave him these big promises. Ever since then, God has been showing up throughout the story and making big promises. Big promises that are all linked back to this original one in Genesis 12. At key moments in their life, God reminds people, reminds his people of his plan to bless them. He renews his commitment to bless the world through them. To give them a special land, a special place, and and promises to be with them all the way. Now for Jacob, when he first received, you know, his first promise, not just what dad had told him, what grandpa said, but like his first experience of the promise, he was on the run from his brother Esau. Because you might remember Jacob was a bit of a sneak, and he and his mom plotted to steal the firstborn inheritance rights from his older brother. Remember, we love this family, right? They make us feel really great about ours. So anyway, so Jacob, his sneaky little guy, had, had, had done this to his brother. His brother wanted to kill him. And so mom puts him on the run to go see some relatives far away where he'll be safe. So Jacob's on the run from his murderous brother, you know, his, his ashamed father and his conniving mom. And he's going, and he's on the way, he's all alone. And at night, God shows up and speaks to him. And it's the famous story, some of you may have heard, that where he has this dream and there's like this big ladder going up to heaven and angels are coming up and down on it. Well, God speaks to him in that dream and this is what God says to him. This is the, this is the young Jacob. This is the Jacob who's probably around the same age that Joseph was when Joseph was sold into slavery. This is young Jacob and this is what he first hears God tell him in a dream. In Genesis 28, we hear these words, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's the, that's the promise that young Jacob received. And now, as old Jacob heads into Egypt for the rest of his life, he'll die there. God tells him he'll die there. God steps in to renew his promise to him. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but did you hear how the first promise God gave to Jacob when he was a young man is now echoed in this last promise, this last renewal of promise that he gives to him as an old man here at the end of the story? Four things stood out to me if you put them side by side. And I'm just going to go through them. First, who? God reminds Jacob who he is. Who's making the promise. He says, I am the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. He links who he is back into the story of what Jacob has heard and understood from his father and his grandfather. This is the God who's called us. This is the God who's shaping our lives. This is the God who is speaking to me right now. And in other words, it's a way of God saying, I'm qualified to make this promise. Yeah. What I'm going to say next, you should pay attention to. What I'm going to say next, I stand behind. You can depend on me to make this happen. Now, you can look around your life. You can see what's going on. Young Jacob fleeing from his murderous brother, unsure of his future. Old Jacob now leaving the land he'd been promised and going into Egypt, wondering what the future is going to hold. You can see around you an uncertainty, but you know who I am. I'm speaking to you. I'm qualified to make this promise. I will stand behind it. I will make it happen. You can trust me. So God first sets out the who. 
And then he talks about the where. He assures Jacob of what he's promised his family regarding this land, this place. He says, I'll bring you back again. He says that both times, specifically that. I will bring you back again. You're leaving, but I'll bring you back again. In other words, it may take longer than you thought. (laughs) This turns out literally hundreds and hundreds of years. It may take longer than you thought, but I will make good on my plan to provide your family a home in which you can flourish. And if you're wondering how, it's like C.1. I'm God. I stand behind my promises. So the who and the where. And then he talks about the purpose. God renews his purpose for Jacob's family that they will be blessed to be a blessing. A blessing to all the other families, all the other nations in the world. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And that promise, almost word for word, is renewed every time God speaks to one of these guys. Same words. He spoke to to Isaac in Genesis 26, springing from the same original promise that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. This promise, this purpose for God's people is central to what God is going to do through this family for the whole world. And then the fourth thing we hear is presence, the promise that God says, I will be with you. I'll go with you. I'll be with you the whole way. And it's it's an incredibly reassuring promise that doesn't matter where Jacob is or his family is, God has promised to be with them. Now, this is kind of unique. It doesn't strike us maybe as unique, but back in the ancient Near East, gods were really seen very territorial. They were gods of a certain area. And man, if you were away from home, you're kind of in trouble. You've got to figure out how to make the gods of that place happy, Right? And and, and instead, what we discover here, which we've discovered all through the story, is that God isn't tied like that to a place because, well, the whole of creation is his. It doesn't matter where you go, God is there. And so he promises to, as it were, travel with his people, to be with them like he's been with Joseph. God has been with Joseph in, in, in the pit and in Potiphar's house and in the palace. He's been with Joseph through his time in prison. God is promising now to be with them. And it reassures them of his presence. So those four elements, the who, the where, the purpose, and the presence, they're seen all through what God is telling them. The promise of God is rooted in God's identity. It's linked somehow to geography. It's destined to be a blessing for all nations, and it's guaranteed by God's presence with them. God's a good promise maker. He's a good promise keeper. And as Jacob is now heading into Egypt, God steps in to say to him, basically, look, I never forget what I've said. I never forget my promises. I never will forget you. Now, from where Jacob stood that night, in Beersheba, heading down to Egypt, he, he was able to trace back, right? He, he hears these words from God spoken, and he, you know, he's like, yeah, I've heard that before. I mean, I know this. This is, this is good. This is good. But like, I can trace back to where I heard you say that to me for the first time. In fact, I can trace back further to where you said the same thing to Isaac. I can trace that back further to, to what Grandfather Abraham had told us. And he's able to stand and see how this same God is meeting them and is renewing his promise and is bringing his family along. And then in turn, Jacob can turn and face the future in faith. Now, he doesn't know how God's going to do it. But knowing that this God has continued to interact, this God has been with us, this God is making promises, enables Jacob to face the future, and though he doesn't know how God's going to do it, he can be assured that God will work it out, because God makes good in his promises. 
Well, what about us? You know, we sit much, much, much further in God's story than Jacob did. Which means that we're able to trace God's promises with considerable more clarity. We're able to see how it actually worked. We're able to see where these promises God was making to Jacob, which only hinted at what he was going to do in the future, we can actually see where they were really headed. We can see how they're ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, one offspring from this family, destined to be a blessing to all the nations. And then we can see how that promise continues to shape everyone who follows that one offspring, follows Jesus himself. And it's critical we do that kind of tracing, I think, for at least two reasons. One, tracing God's promises through this story shapes how we read the collection of books we call the Bible. There's 66 of them. And it helps us understand where those stories fit in this, in the arc of God's promise. Knowing the promises that God made to his ancient people helps us then place all of these pre-Jesus stories in their proper context. They all are designed to set up the coming of Jesus himself. They all act as pointers and hints and promises and indicators of where God is actually going. Everything we read in the pre-Jesus stories, everything that comes in your Bibles before the book of Matthew, all of that finds its true meaning, its true interpretation, understanding through the life of Jesus himself and then the coming of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. And by tracing these promises, we're then able to understand the whole story so much better. But the second reason why tracing God's promises are so important is that it shapes how we live now as the family of God, as followers of Jesus. Having seen how God's promise is fulfilled in Christ, and then having received his commission to extend that promise, extend that blessing to others through the gift of his Holy Spirit, that shapes how we live. And that's where we're going to finish today. With God's promise to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham as sort of the backdrop, we want to trace the ark to Jesus and straight through Jesus to us, Because every step of the way, down through this long history, down through each and every one of the stories as it unfolded, God showed up to renew his commitment to his ancient people. Every time he sent a, a prophet to warn them, to encourage them. Every single time Jesus was in the picture, God was pointing them toward what he would do. They, you know, the name wasn't there, but all the indications were present. Everything was aiming at this much higher, much larger, bigger goal. To bless the whole world and not just settle one people. God's promise to bless the world through this family was actually his highest goal and it was only achieved with the coming of Christ and the commissioning of the church. But I find it very interesting, as I was looking at this week, how these same four elements, the same four elements that we keep seeing show up in the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, these elements, which are finally fulfilled in Christ, they all form part, or they at least hint at it, point at, part of the ongoing mission of us as followers of Jesus, of the church. And we can see them and trace them even in our commission from Jesus, which I want to look at. So Jesus, after he'd risen from the dead, he spent some time with hundreds and hundreds of people so they knew this wasn't a fairy tale, it's not mythological, not just an idea somebody had. This guy is real. Flesh and blood. I had dinner with him last week. It was amazing. Yeah. 
So, real thing, he hung around for, for, for uh, many, many days, and, and then, and then, right at the end, just before he ascends to be with his father, where he sits down at the right hand of the father to rule creation, he gives his people this, this commission. Some of you are very familiar with these words, and some, for some of you, this will be new. But here, these are like the last words Jesus speaks in uh, Matthew's Gospel, the first book of the New Testament. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. Did you hear the four elements in there? Did did, did you hear hints of them? I want us to trace them. These four elements we saw, even present in God's promise to Jacob, here in this commission that Jesus gives to us. First, Jesus establishes his identity, the who. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Which means, what? I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord of all creation. I'm the one in charge. I'm the king of heaven and earth. I mean, not only does that mean sit up and pay attention. Like, okay, like whatever he says next, I need to listen to this. I need to obey this. I need to respond to this. But it also underscores his power and his commitment to make good on his promise to make the world right again. Can I, on the last Sunday, make a reference to Lord of the Rings? Can I? You know how much I love that book? I read it like every 18 months. It's like soul food for me. Okay, all right. But let me say it anyway. At the end of Lord of the Rings, when the king is finally back on the throne after the long, 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 long generation upon generation upon generation with no king, he's finally on the throne in Gondor. But as people move further and further away from the throne, they begin to discover there's still things wrong in the world, right? But they begin to tell people what? There's a king in Gondor now. And he's beginning to make things right. Fair warning to those who want to muck with his land, but also blessing to all who welcome the coming of the king. Okay, and Lord of the Rings quote here. But this is what Jesus is saying. There's a king on the throne now. And evil is going to be turned and destroyed so that good can come, so that renewal can come, so that freedom can come. He's putting the world back to rights. And like in Jacob's dream, this establishes who's the boss, but now with greater clarity than ever, because who's the boss isn't some vague notion of some God, but it's the one who became one of us in Jesus Christ, the one who became a baby, incarnated, the one who lived among us, the perfect life where he healed people and showed us who God was and loved the outcast and brought together people, but also challenged those who would seek to destroy. And this Jesus went to the cross. And died this bloody, excruciating death, not because of something he had done, but for our sakes. And then when he died, he, he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead in power and promised resurrection to anyone who would trust him for it. That's the king who now says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. Woo! I would say he establishes who. Who he is. But the second thing, he marks out his geography, the where. 
the geography he's including. But this time, folks, it's global. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of, of, of one nation, two, your favorite ones, the ones who look like you, the ones you can understand, the ones that make you feel comfortable. No. Therefore, go and make disciples of how many nations? All. What? All. Are there any excluded from all? That's not a trick question, actually. All nations. Now, I love it because there's a call to go, which, if you see the story unfold, particularly Abraham and Jacob, they all involve calls to go in faith, to follow, to go. But this time, Jesus, because of what he's done, this go call has a scope that Jacob or Abraham could not have possibly imagined because it's no longer about making one family a great nation. It's about including all nations in the great family of God. Do you hear that? It's not about making one family a great nation. It's about bringing all nations, including all nations, in this great, global, multi-ethnic, multilingual church of Jesus Christ. This expanding family now, Jesus says, isn't just about making babies, although we like that. just want to say, for those of you... In the business right now. <laughs> you see the post I put up a couple weeks ago? Our worship team alone was like seven babies. It was awesome. Anyway, Jesus said, look, going and growing the church isn't about making babies per se, though we love that. It's about making disciples. It's about adding people to the family of God. By adding men and women and children and singles and families and people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of religious backgrounds, all kinds of sexual orientation, all kinds of experience, all kinds of political persuasion. It doesn't matter where they're from, what they think, what they've done. Go and get them. Oh, okay. So he marked out the geography. Abraham Kuyper was a famous Dutch politician and uh, uh, theologian. And he, he, he captured it beautifully this way when he said this, that there is not a square inch, hold your hands out, square inch, folks, hold it out, not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You hear that? Not a square inch over the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, overall, does not cry, mine. And not mine in an ugly, possessive sense, but mine in the sense that I'm going to bring freedom and life. I'm going to bring healing to what's been broken. I'm going to bring light where there's been darkness. I'm going to, I'm going to bind up the wounded. I'm going to give them a home, and I'm going to bring the lost and the lonely into a family where they will be loved and cared for. Mine, Jesus says. As he holds open his arms and dies. Mine, as he says, when he rises from the dead to bring more into the family. Well, God's promise to Jacob was this promise to make him a great nation. And he did that. But that was never God's highest plan. God's desire was to do in this one nation what he wanted to do for all peoples, for all nations. And now because of Jesus, it's being done. The geography of the kingdom has been marked out for us by Jesus. And it's the very ground you walk on starting with the, 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 the sidewalk outside your front door, 
and extending literally to every place, every nook, every cranny, every ocean, every plain, desert, mountain, land, every town, every slum, every street, every city, every place. (laughs) That's the geography of Jesus. All of creation is under his authority, and so he says, go. Go make disciples. Well, third, the purpose. Jesus sends us to bless. Blessing was always the purpose for which God created a people. To bring blessing to the world, Jesus came, born of the family of Abraham, to fulfill the promise that God had given over and over and over again, that through this family, all of the earth would be blessed. Through an offspring from this family, all of the world would be changed. We're now called to go and make disciples of all nations, and we're told to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Now, have you ever thought of baptism and teaching as a blessing? Have you thought of it that way? That the work we have of seeing people baptized and taught is actually one of the ways, maybe the central way that we extend the blessing that God has called us to extend. Well, let's try this out. Precise. What is baptism? Baptism ultimately is about including people who were far away from Jesus, people who did not have hope, people who were lost and broken and ashamed and despairing. It's including them in the family of God. It's including them in the forgiveness of Christ. It's including them in who they can truly be because Jesus has destined them for life with him. Baptism is this amazing picture of being washed clean, of being adopted in, of being loved and known because you have been created by God himself and you belong with him. Can you think of a greater blessing than knowing that? A greater blessing than being raised to life in Christ, being included in the family of God? I mean, there's no greater blessing that we can give or extend to anyone anywhere. So I think baptism is a pretty good blessing. I think it stands as, you know, there's the act of baptism, but the the larger sense that we include people in the family of God. Well, let me ask you this. How is teaching these baptized disciples to obey everything Jesus has commanded them, how is this a blessing? Well, let me ask you. What did Jesus exactly tell his followers to do? What's the new command that Jesus gave them? The command that that we're to obey uh, from Jesus. We're to obey it every day in every way without fail, no matter what the cost. Now, did Jesus give us a long, complicated list of things to do? Did he prescribe for us all the various things you should do in every situation down to the detail? Did he tell you what you should wear? Or what you should eat? Or, hmm, how you should drive? Did he tell you any of those things? No. He didn't. Jesus said repeatedly that he's given us a new command. The one thing that we are to obey. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. Can we say that together? Love one another. And then he says, as I have loved you, so you must love One another. I'm going to say that again. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Do you know that's a higher calling than even this do unto one, uh, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Because this isn't about, well, how do I want to be treated? I want to be treated well. So I want to treat you well, so then you'll treat me well, which can be ultimately self-serving, right? 
This is, this is not that. This is love others as you have been loved. Ah, friends, that's what we're being called to teach people to obey. And if you're a new disciple or an old one, if you're, if you're a new follower of Jesus or, or you're just figuring out who Jesus is, what we are called to obey, the obedience under this Lord of heaven and earth that we're called to live out is simply this. We're commanded to love others as Jesus loved us. Now, that's fairly easy to grasp conceptually. It's not a long list, you know. It's fairly easy for us to wrap our minds around it. But as we all know, it is very hard to live, to do. And we need God's Holy Spirit working in us every day. We need the grace of God to cover our mistakes. We, we, need, we need the Holy Spirit correcting things and attitudes and worldviews and ways we look at other people and the, 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 the automatic ways we respond in certain situations. We need the Holy Spirit in there doing this work of saying, whoa, that's got to go. Whoa, that can stay. But let's do something with it. You know, we need the Holy Spirit healing us from old wounds, challenging certain ways of, of responding and, and seeing others and, and cleansing us of our own sin so that we can keep on keeping on in this love command. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to teach. This is how we help each other follow Jesus. We continue to teach each other through our actions and examples and words and challenge what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. And friends, that is a huge blessing. I mean, who thinks it might be a blessing to be part of a group of people who every day are getting up thinking, how can I love other people around me the way Jesus loved me? Hands up. Who thinks that would be great to be part of a group like that? Every day, they're trying to figure out how to love you the way Jesus loved them. Oh man, there should be way more hands up right now. I want to be part of that kind of community. Who thinks, who thinks it'd be kind of just a little bit great if the men and women around you, you know, are learning step by step through, through example, through modeling, through the work of the Holy Spirit, are learning how to lay their lives down to put others before themselves the way that Jesus did for them and for you. I think that'd be great. This is what Jesus is doing. This is the blessing he's offering. Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise and it's through him that the whole world is blessed. But now, he sends us to make that blessing real. He sends us as his emissaries out into the world saying, there's a king on the throne and man, does he want to bless you. Let me tell you how. To be his people that are announcing forgiveness, that are proclaiming freedom, that are loving the lost, that are helping people find and follow Jesus, that are sharing the story of how God has gotten into their lives and changed them, changed you, including them in the family and then teaching them what it means to love the way we have been loved. Well, that's the purpose. But fourth, Jesus finishes with the promise of his presence. He promises to be with us. And surely I am with you always, Jesus said, to the very end of the age. You know, to Jacob, God reassured him of his presence as he now went down to Egypt. And Jesus, at the very end of his commission to us, he promises that this this big commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. He says, but but don't worry. I'm not sending you alone. I'm coming with you. I'm a God who likes to travel. I like to see my domain. 
and see it coming to be set to rights. He will come with us, filling us with the Holy Spirit as we announce his forgiveness and freedom to the nations. He promised us that the Holy Spirit would come and at the end of the Gospels, just before Jesus ascends, he says, don't do anything until you get some help. He says, don't try it alone. And so they wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit that he promised. And he said to them, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, look, because listen, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be filled with power and you will be my witnesses, starting with your hometown, Jerusalem, extending out into the surrounding area and going to the ends of the world. In other words, the coming of the Spirit enables all these things that Jesus commissioned us to do to become real in and through our lives. He has promised to be with us right from where we live, right to the ends of the earth. And his promise caps it all off. The one who has all authority marks out his global mission, sends us to bless and promises to be with us every step of the way. I think that's amazing. And so as I finish today, I want to ask, how does that shape us as the Erickson Covenant Church? You all know that I'm going off for a while. Now, I am hoping not to die while I'm gone. Not expecting to be ascended anywhere or do anything like that. So to say this is the last word to you is, you know, an overstatement. But let me just say this. I want to say to you a few things before I leave on sabbatical. I'm going to return to my role as a lead pastor in July. I'm so thankful to our leadership team, to the ministry teams, all throughout the church ministry of youth, music, sound, dream team, children's, just go on and on. I'm so thankful for all of you and the way that you're stepping into ministry. Very thankful for Dana and her leadership. And I'm able to go on this sabbatical, but before I do, I want to be able to, to share with you as I wrap up, just, just that I think God has made us promises as a church. That he's promised us, as he always promises his people, the Holy Spirit will fulfill this promise to be a blessing. Fulfill this promise to, to, to make disciples, to help people find and follow Jesus. That God has made us a promise as a church. He's perfectly positioned us in this valley to declare and help people find and follow him. And so let me say, emerging out of those four things we've already talked to, talked about, let me just say this. I want to, I want to encourage you not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember who is king. I know there's daunting things ahead of us. Daunting things in our lives to, to, to try to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus? What it means to love one another as Christ has loved me? And how do I, how do I respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life? How do we as a church continue to pursue the mission? There's daunting things. Financially right now, we're a little daunted as a church. But I want to say to you, don't be afraid. I also want to say, don't be afraid to give either. And what I mean by that is this, because often that is what holds me back from giving. It's fear. It's fear that I may not have enough. It's fear that I might not be able to do the things that I want to do. It's fear that holds me back. And I want to say, if the one with all authority over heaven and earth is speaking to us and calling us to go, then don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Erickson Covenant Church, for what God has for us or what he's calling us to do. Second, keep helping people find and follow Jesus, which is our Erickson Covenant speak for keep making disciples of all nations. Keep making disciples of the people on your street. Keep making disciples, helping people find and follow Jesus. 
People that you work with, people you go to school with. Keep loving them. Keep encouraging them. Keep inviting them. Do you know the number one way churches grow? People invite them to come. (laughs) It's not rocket science. We invite others to come. We help people find and follow Jesus by loving them, by including them in our lives. And I just want to encourage you, as I go off in sabbatical, let's continue to be a church that is making disciples, that is helping people find and follow Jesus. Whether we gather here or gather in our small groups or we are scattered to the winds every week, let's be a people who are helping people find and follow Jesus, doing whatever it takes, because the Lord of heaven and earth has told us to do it. But he also goes with us. Oh, that's the end point. Let's, that, I'll hold back. This, the third one is, let's be the blessing that we are. Be the blessing that you are in whatever relationship, wherever you are, in your family, among your colleagues, online. Be the blessing that you are. Jesus has destined you and I to be blessing others, to be revealing Jesus to them, to be loving the way Christ has loved us. Sometimes we can say things, sometimes we have to remain silent and just show us our example, but to be the blessing. He calls us to be a blessing. You know, this week I had coffee with someone, someone who's among us, but I won't name, and he said to me, unprompted, The greatest blessing of his life was the day that his friend invited him to come here. He said, I'll help you go a couple weeks then. I'll help somebody else give you a ride. I'll meet you at the front and welcome you in. And for two weeks he did that. This person I was having coffee with said, that changed my life. That changed the trajectory of my life. I found Jesus. I found healing. I found blessing in this community. Friends, let's keep being that kind of blessing. And then last, to know that Jesus is with us. He never will leave us, never forsake us. The Spirit is present here in our church, in our community, hovering over us, going with us. As we gather, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But as we scatter, we're like little temples out there in the world. Everywhere we go, God is present in us, working through us. And that we take great confidence and reassurance from. God goes with us. Jesus said, I am with you always. He will never leave us, never forsake us. Listen, I'm going to be praying for you while I'm on sabbatical. And I hope you'll be praying for me. I believe firmly that Jesus has uniquely positioned us as the Erickson Covenant Church to bless the Creston Valley. That he's uniquely positioned us by his sovereign hand to help men, women, and children find and follow him. That he has purposed us to be his hands and feet of blessing in this world. And I just want us to leave knowing that he is with us. And he's going to do in us what he's promised to do. Can I pray for you? And then the worship team, I think, is going to come and lead us in one more song. Is that true? Yeah. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for us, for the Erickson Covenant Church. I'm thankful for these people, these men and women and children who are following you and some who are still finding you. I'm thankful for these friendships and for the care that this community extends to so many people. And now as I leave on sabbatical, I'm thankful for the care they extend to me, to my family. And I just pray your blessing upon them, your blessing on the Erickson Covenant Church. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Send us into your mission. Renew in us the purpose you've given us. We have been blessed to be a blessing, to include others in your family and show them what it means to love. Lord Jesus, thank you for being sovereign over us. 
We bless you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.